and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hi, everyone. I am really excited about our show today. I would love to introduce you to Daniel Four. He is a PhD and is a licensed psychotherapist and has led ancestral and family healing intensives since 2005. He's also the author of the book, Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing. And I am really interested to learn more about his doctoral research in psychology. Uh, He focused on shamanic healing practices by mental health professionals. So all of you know, that is my background and this conversation is going to be right up my alley. So Daniel, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thanks so much, April. It's good to be here. Yeah, I, I'd love for you to just uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about your background. You have a pretty extensive background. You um, have been around the world. You have been, you know, involved in many other cultures and, you know, studying the psychology behind them and then getting into the ancestor work and the work of ritual. So I'd like you to just kind of bring us on your journey a little bit before we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation here. Yeah, sure. So give a nod of respect to my own ancestors who were early English, German, Irish settler colonialist in North America through Pennsylvania and Ohio. I live now in Western North Carolina in traditional Cherokee territory and spent some a good number of years in the San Francisco Bay Area as well. And I wasn't raised with any kind of ritual or ceremony. I was marginally Methodist, but sought out as a teenager paganism and shamanism and ritual kinds of things and had the good fortune early on to connect with teachers and they gave me a framework for relating with the spirits of plants and animals and deities and so since that time when I was 16 17 I've leaned in a lot with work with different kinds of teachers and systems and some of those have been with indigenous systems like uh, Native North American ways, especially Lakota and Native American church, but I don't presume to represent those ways, but they've been an influence. And more often than not, it's been with non-indigenous systems, people that are practicing earth honoring traditions and uh, Yoruba culture has been one big influence. I go back and forth to West Africa and train with teachers in Ifa Arisha tradition. And so I, um, have sat with Buddhist teachers and, you know, I've worked with, within different systems. And I, uh, alongside being a ritualist, I am also a doctor of psychology and a licensed marriage and family therapist, even though I don't practice per se, I implicitly practice uh, that all the time in my mentorship of people. And I'm an animist. I'm a uh, someone who approaches life with an emphasis on relationships and on recognizing that not only living humans, but many other kinds of people, uh, ancestors, animals, deities, the land, also have a, a kind of personhood and that we're accountable to them. And it's good to remember how to be in relationship with the others. And within that, I have a specialization and work with the ancestors, with the, the human dead and, and working with that for the intention of family and cultural healing. So that's a little bit. 
Great. That was a great recap. Thank you. Um, so how long were you a marriage and family therapist? Um, I got licensed, I think, in 2007 or something. Uh, I did my training from 2002 to 2005 in my uh, graduate work. Uh, I'm still licensed. I just don't actively practice, per se. And I'm a priest. I'm a ritualist. And the therapy training was fairly consciously intended to just help me to be a better ritualist. And I'm glad for it because a lot of people drawn to spiritual practice and all that could really benefit from a lot of what uh, clinical mental health has to offer. And, uh, and a lot of therapists could stand to shake it up with ritual and spirituality a bit. So, yeah, I mean, and, and that's what I feel too, just working in the field of mental health, you know, for so long and, you know, just understanding, you know, your use of it in the practice, but also beginning to blend and, you know, help our clients learn about ritual space. Cause it's just, I mean, it is, we do have it in our culture here in Western culture, you know, and it is, you know, primary that of the indigenous culture, but I really feel that there's an element of it that does lack. And I have found too, when you begin to bring some of that in some of the more traditional mental health counseling, I mean, people shift, move and heal, uh, just quicker, faster, and in a more in-depth way than I feel traditional psychotherapy uh, can offer. One of the ways that psychotherapy often, often unintentionally, and not always, but often, replicates a kind of racist, colonialist harm, the cultural damage, is to place the emphasis only on relationships between living humans. Mm-hmm. And e- even that, uh, often therapists, if they haven't really done a lot of depth in their work, will construct the suffering of the client as being too individualistic without recognizing the systemic oppression from sexism and racism and poverty and different kinds of troubles. And just that aside, um, an additional layer that I want to speak to for a moment of how uh, mental health sometimes um replicates a really incomplete map of reality is by participating in the subjectification or depersonifying or, or delegitimizing of the the reality of the other than humans and that the there's the plant people the stone people the animal people the ancestors etc are not looked at as sources of potential relational intimacy they're not seen as sources of uh, emotionally corrective experience or earned attachment or uh, reparenting and a lot of indigenous or or other than indigenous earth honoring systems still remember that relational healing and mental emotional healing can come about from healthy relationships between humans and other than humans Mm -hmm. and when therapists overlook that resource it's not only a missed opportunity it's a replication of a, a exploitative racist colonialist framework that underwrote the genocidal behavior of Europeans in the Americas and beyond. And I'm not saying therapists are out to commit genocide, but I'm saying that um, if we don't examine the underlying assumptions that we're operating from, then we can enable the harmful patterns to continue. 
Yeah. And, and I'm hoping our conversation today too, if, you know, we do have some mental health professionals that are listening to the podcast and that maybe they aren't involved in ritual work or have never themselves been immersed in it, that I hope that this conversation really inspires people to do that. Um, I would love to just hear a little bit more, if you don't mind, about the research and what you found when you were going through um, your doctoral studies about what you found with shamanic healing practices done by mental health professionals and and what you found there. Yeah, the it was a decade ago, and so I would frame it a little differently now. But um, I looked at the I say when as defined at the time shamanism, I was looking at what's essentially inspired by the revival forms of shamanism. So Michael Harner, Sandra Ingerman, core shamanism, so to speak, which has expanded and, and moved beyond the uh, you know, shadow, for better or for worse, <laughs> excuse me, of Michael Harner. And uh, and so it was, I was looking at a kind of narrow set of techniques, but what I found at the time is like, yeah, it's it's quite possible to weave things like connection with animal spirit powers, soul retrieval, energy healing into a psychotherapy setting, provided you in the moment know clinically how to frame in a useful way what you're doing. And of course, it needs to be a cultural match and there needs to be consent from the client. And you need to be really deeply trained and proficient in both skill sets to know how to weave them and combine them responsibly. And at this point, what I, so it's possible. That's, that was my conclusion. And what I would add at this point is uh, it's possible to work from what I would consider like a decolonizing ethic where we legitimize these other kinds of relationships, as I was talking about with the, you know, the wider field of kin and you know, animals, plants, the land, the ancestors, the deities, and to uh, see them as really meaningful sources of intimacy for the clients. And just like most of what people suffer with in psychotherapy, I personally tend to see as systemic problems. They're, uh, people are suffering from cultural damage. I think it's Jerome Bernstein in his Borderlands book who says the, the client in psychotherapy is Western civilization. You're treating what is unhelpful about the, the dominant culture. And in that sense, I also tend to see a lot of the suffering uh, that people are working through in therapy when they go to therapy as ancestrally sourced in particular, and that it's a continuation of intergenerational patterns of, uh, you know, abuse, addiction, you know, oppressive behaviors, unmetabolized trauma, things like that. I think that's a, a great segue um, into what I'd like to talk about next, too. So, yeah, let's continue with that in our conversation. How how does one begin to heal their ancestral lineage? And how do we get individu individuals to maybe just um, really kind of, I don't want to say wake up in a sense, but maybe stop for a second and really take a look at those patterns that have happened within their lineage and maybe helping people to understand what that means to heal an ancestral lineage. Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, for one, an assumption is that the ancestors, the dead, the ones who are not incarnate right now, but who were previously incarnate, dwell in the present. They're not just memories, they're not just parts of us, but they have a kind of soul or spirit you know, reality on their own terms. 
and therefore a relational stance is appropriate or warranted. They're not just a part of us. And next step is to recognize that not all the dead are equally well and happy and wise and loving. Just dying doesn't make you and uh, a source of healing and kindness. It makes you not incarnate anymore. And so the dead who are wise and loving can have a beneficial and supportive impact on our lives. And the ones who are in a troubled state can have a less than awesome impact on our lives. And the degree of impact is really substantial. It's not something we get to opt out of. Like you can not believe in microorganisms, but still die from infection. And it's like that with the ancestors. They have a, a kind of structural reality that we don't get to opt out of. We are group level, lineage level creatures more than we might want to acknowledge. And, but Yeah. Um, and so kind of leading off from that too, can you talk a little bit about the importance of communicating with the ancestors and maybe those ancestors, like you said, who had passed, but um, there's stuff that isn't healed or they're not happy or healing needs to happen with within them with our help in order for the living generation to move forward with more healing. Yeah, there, there's so many reasons that those relationships are important to tend to. It's like the trunk asking, why is it important to know about the roots? Do the roots exist? Or, you know, and, and so we're part of one larger organism, some of which is in the visible and some of which is in the unseen. And so the question, and if you were to ask, Daniel, tell me, why is it important to communicate with other living humans? And be like, well, geez, there's a lot of reasons. And, <laughs> and so it's like that with the ancestors. Uh, for, a culture, for cultures that really have an intact system of ancestor reverence and tending to those relationships. It's a, uh, a commentary on how far we've come in the direction we're in to even ask it like that. And so, but, but it's a, and it's a fine question. And so one of the most immediate reasons to communicate is to understand what kind of impact they're having on us in the present, in the moment, how much of our physical, emotional, spiritual, mental suffering and life condition is being shaped by their unresolved or unmetabolized pain. Because when it is being shaped by that, it's really good to become conscious of it and to seek to bring them the healing they need so that there can be resolution for us also. So resolving unresolved legacies is, is one immediate reason. Another reason is that the ancestors can help us to get clear about what we're doing here. Because we're not just here to feed into a capitalist system and make a bunch of money and die with a nice funeral. That's not really, you know, the bigger design. And so we want to have clarity on a soul level about what our gifts are. And our people, our ancestors, remember that. And it's important when I talk about ancestors for your listeners that I'm not just talking about the remembered dead, not just the recent ones, because some folks may come from families that are really have a lot of pain and a lot of abuse or harm. And so they'd be like, why on earth, Daniel, would I want to invoke that into my life? I spent 20 years of expensive therapy trying to get away from it. Totally legit question. I'm saying that the recent dead are only the most visible layer of a much bigger system 
and nobody's ancestors are messed up through all time and space. Those patterns began somewhere, and it's possible to connect with the dead who lived before those patterns. Mm-hmm. And the final, final thing I'll drop in in this moment is just that the dead change. They're not all... People can be really difficult and harmful during life and work it out when they die. They continue to have agency, and they continue to be able to change. And sometimes when people are very unwell during life and they get it, they become very motivated in spirit to make repairs. And it's good for us to allow for that. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Um, And you probably touched on it, but I just kind of want to bring some of the language that, you know, I saw on your website. I was looking at your uh, practitioner training. And Mm -hmm. in that, it was also, you were also kind of going through what people would learn. And, you know, one of it was working with ancestral curses, uh, funky spirit phenomenon and lineage toxins. So, uh, the lineage toxins, um, I'm curious about too, would that be things like abuse, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, or are there other types of, um, you know, toxins in a family system that you're referring to? Well, sure. I mean, there's all kinds of ways humans get into bad behavior. They can be more extreme and systemic or more interpersonal in scope. And when we're trying to clean up a system, meaning the the system of the lineages, the, the souls and the spirits that collectively form a lineage that comes before any given person, it's possible sometimes that there are other than human spirit energies that get woven in there. An example would be in the cases of sexual abuse or predatory behavior in that way. Sometimes it's a living human just acting in a really harmful, self-absorbed way that transgresses a boundary of another person. And, and the damage to that from that can be really extensive. And also additionally, at times, it's fear-eating, unconscious, or maliciously conscious other than human energies that are working through the fragmented human also that are, uh, let's just say eating fear. Uh, and there are things, how to say the uh, work with the, the spirits is not inherently safe any more than work with the living is not inherently safe. When you get up around, when you bump into really, um, changing systems, whether it's you can want to reform, for example, the prison system, which is founded on a lot of exploitative racism and capitalism. But once you actually go to do that, if you get far into it, you're going to bump up against the forces that benefit from that. Mm. And those forces will kill you if you aren't prepared because they are defending their own stake and agenda. And so it's like that with spirit work, too. If you and you know, people who have been bitten by these kinds of energies in their own family probably resonate or can have a feel for what I'm talking about. They're like, oh, yeah, there's there's human badness and then there's otherworldly badness that moves through humans sometimes. And if you're going to get into a system and try to bring some healing to it, you want to know how to safely and responsibly navigate those types of challenges and yeah, so that's an example. Great. 
Great. And and how about ancestral curses? I mean, I've, I've spoken to quite a few shamans on uh, the podcast, um, many different types of healers, and we've never really actually have, uh, I've had, haven't had a conversation with anyone about this before. Um, I know yeah. sometimes I've, you know, heard people working within past lives. I've heard people sometimes say that we can make contracts in a past life, or maybe there could be something that we say that can create some bondage or a contract that moves into the next life. But yeah, we've, I've never really talked to anyone about ancestral curses. So I'd like to have a conversation about that. It's not something I focus on a ton, but I'll say that in, in the West, generally speaking, one of the good sides of not being trained in ritual very much is that when people are hating, it's mostly unskillful hating, like throwing energy around in a messy, like, you're a loser, go die kind of way. And so it, that can have real impact. But it's like being hit with a handful of mud, more so than with a really targeted poison dart. Mm -hmm. And so occasionally, rarely, People will, that I encounter at least, I think it's more common in some other places, will will be this uh, impacted by very specifically directed harmful magic. And so that requires a bit of slowing down and understanding to unravel. So the, the, there are such things, but I just don't encounter them in my, the demographic I work with that often. And more commonly, there are, as, as you described, patterns, uh, agreements, conscious or unconscious, that get passed on and replicated from generation to generation. And they can function. It's useful to describe them as a curse because what you're looking at is essentially a, a belief, a pattern, a thought form, or a, you know, some kind of soul-level agreement that until it's brought conscious and until there's an antidote or a different agreement put in place, it'll tend to just operate in the background in a sabotaging or unhelpful way. So often if people understand what the blessings and gifts and awesome qualities of any given lineage are, and they really affirm those and take those to heart, then whatever so-called curses are there will dissolve. So I tend to work from this uh, anid poisons and antidotes model, I guess you'd say. So if you know what the the blessing you need the blessing to be stronger than the so-called curse mm. yeah okay great and um let's say i'd like you to speak to uh maybe the importance or i guess the fact that this work isn't to be taken too lightly and if you're introducing it say into this western culture that is like okay you know i want to try this maybe they are they're very um, interested in it they feel called to it something resonates with them um what i have found through my own personal experience in doing you know rituals being a part of it leading them to is that it's subtle, but it's so deep and it can appear sometimes as if, okay, you know, this hap this is happening here. There's some drumming here or, you know, we're honoring the, the different elements and we're using them for the healing. But the healing that I, that I have gone through and have experienced like is continuous. It's not just like you show up to a ritual event and you're immersed in this weekend and then you leave the event and it's done. I mean, it, it really goes beyond and integrates, I feel into a person's system. And so how does a practitioner really, um, 
really begin to explain what people are getting themselves into if they're coming to like a weekend immersive or they're doing a full day uh, ritual for them to really understand, to move into the space with respect and to move into the space with, um, I don't know, just, I guess, a certain state of consciousness to understand what they're going into is a pretty serious thing. It's a really good question. I'm glad you bring it up. And it's something I actually um, sit with and struggle with a lot. We have a lot of conversations about it in our community of practitioners and folks doing the work. So most people have had a sucky experience of authority to begin with. And so just teaching is a challenge because, you know, people are expect the worst in a lot of ways. And... Additionally, most people have grown up in a culture that commodifies wisdom and basically says, you you know, I paid for it. I got it. It's mine now. And that's not really how it works traditionally or on a spirit level. There's a need to embody something and take your time with it and all that. And just because you, yeah, just because you've done a training in a thing doesn't mean you've necessarily embodied it and lived it yet. And people sometimes abuse that their authority or like are too controlling with stuff. And people accuse me of that. And it's a, it's an interesting inquiry, how tightly to hold a modality, how tightly to hold on to a thing, when to give permissions to teach a thing. Those are important questions. And in my experience personally, with the, the two lineages I've been around enough to get a, a feel for our Lakota tradition and Yoruba tradition, and much more so with Yoruba tradition. But in both, the level of investment and commitment to be able to guide others in a thing is multi-year, for sure. At the very least, you would need to lean in with pretty full, full-on study for maybe at least four years or you know, something, like at least a number of years up front to be able to start working for others. And and so that level of mentorship or apprenticing is not the norm in the West. And it requires staying in relationship. And it's really not something folks are used to. And so I try to, on one hand, be super generous and like give away the teachings. In the book, I, I'm like, here's how to do the work. I made it a how-to book. And so I can't control what happens with that. On the other hand, I I do care a lot about ritual safety. And people sometimes will see on an outer level a thing and be like, oh, I got this. But they don't know what goes on beneath the surface. I've had students that I am mentoring, and then they, they actually go to lead a group ritual, and they're like, damn, I feel wrecked for like a day or two days. Right. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's a lot that you need to do to hold a group space. Right, so, right. How it looks on the outside isn't necessarily how it looks internally. So it, it takes a minute. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for that. And and I think that there is a big difference when you're participating, uh, like you said, as opposed to leading. There's a totally different energy that needs to be held. So yeah. that can be a little shocking for a person running their first, you know, if it's because it, you just you're in a totally different space. And yes, holding holding that space Um Yes, it, it can be pretty profound. And <laughs> they're like, whoa, what just happened? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, just I'm not a purist about stuff. I think we learn through doing. We make mistakes. Yep. And and so e- even in the 
last few years, which is when I've really started to train others in the work, we already have a group of maybe 15 folks who are teaching the work for others. And so I do want to see uh, this and other kinds of inclusive and non-dogmatic approaches to ritual spread and be available to people. I think that's important. So, Yes. And I was really impressed, um, you know, with your website, uh, just the care and concern really comes through with the application process that, you know, if there is a practitioner that's interested, that they need to really thoroughly answer and think about all of these questions that you have. I, I have it open because I am, I'm interested actually in taking your, your training here. And the other thing that I found really, um, just really inviting and nice too is that you do make it easy for people to participate. You have a payment payment plan schedule. Um, you know, there's a part of it where you're asking through their training to either offer free um, sessions to people or at a discounted rate, and you know that too is just puts people in that state of giving and really helping people. Like you said, this isn't this isn't about making money, right? It's not about making yeah. money. Let me speak to that for a sec, because it is partly about making money, and that's partly fine and partly problematic. We have a strong—you can't, in my bias, and not to be so black and white, but I, what I was going to say is you can't really try to get at ancestral healing without considering cultural healing in the ways that systems either replicate goodness or replicate harm. And so we hold the work, I hold the work in a spirit that's feminist, queer-friendly, decolonizing or acknowledging of the history of occupation of indigenous lands in the Americas and elsewhere, anti-racist, um, sensitive to class and economic exploitation, uh, sensitive to religious bigotry and to earth disconnection. And why that's important with respect to money is that some people have the view that it's like a totally unchecked capitalist view of spirituality. Make as much money as you can. It's a job. And some people go to the other extreme of saying it's immoral to mix money and the sacred. Right. And, you know, however, I don't I don't need to argue with folks, but where I what I've seen modeled in a healthy way and what I've seen modeled by my elders also in West Africa is that being a priest, being a ritualist is a vocation. And, and if you want to give the full care and attention to that vocation, it makes sense that there needs to be some support for people. So I have a strong ethic that me and other teachers that work and practitioners should be able to care for their family because the services are important and they should be accessible because the issues around economic inequality and exploitative capitalism are super real. And it's important when we talk about race and gender and colonization to remember just how much greed and uh, economic exploitation fuels and keeps those issues uh, quite alive. So um, sometimes I feel like the, the topic around class and access to services gets lost in, in the cultural healing dialogues and it certainly is a point of confusion around a lot of spiritual practice and a lot of um, contention because there's a lot of competitive energy in the world. The spiritual identified people are, um, what I want to say, uh, have a lot going on sometimes. And sometimes that can show up as competitiveness. You know, I've seen it in myself at times and it's not a, it's not a good look. And so it's my ethic to keep the work accessible and to balance that with being able to support my family and 
other people who are mentoring under me able to support their families. Yeah. yeah. And when I took, um, you know, my Reiki training, there was an emphasis on that too, on ener- it really what, what they called it was energy exchange, you know, because that topic came up as well, uh, about, you know, well, how, how do you exchange services? Does it always have to be monetary? Could it be bartering? Could it be, you know, trading services for the services, but really understanding too, that, how people value what is given. And many people, depending upon where they are in their own personal work, many people don't know how to receive either, you know, to, to give and receive. And when you do have that relationship with an energy exchange that is happening, it, it just allows the process to unfold as it should. Yes. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's, um, let's bring people over to your website because we're talking about something and they may not even know what we're talking about here because I am on the, uh, the 2020 practitioner application questions and you have a training that is coming up in 2020, but you have other online courses that people can take, uh, through your website. So why don't you let people know about where they can find all of this wonderful information? Sure. For folks drawn to ancestral healing, we have a course that begins in the fall, and that it's a full-length course supported by a lot of folks. And more, you know, before that, in late summer, there's a Foundations of Ritual online course, which just is the first time teaching that. I'm excited about it. It's actually, in some ways, a lot of what I teach is you could say intermediate level practice, but the Foundations of Rituals is a my first attempt to do a proper beginner course and to, in a sense, share some of the things that I wish were shared with me about energetic boundaries, prayer and invocation, um, ritual safety, like what is ritual? Why do we do it? How do you do trance work? Like, how do you know the limits around that? So some of the real foundational topics that could apply to people from any tradition. So I'm excited about that. And we have in-person ancestral lineage intensives happening in, I think, eight countries. I'll be in Europe this summer for those. And uh, they're also in the United States and Canada, led by other folks I've trained who are great. And lots of opportunities to connect with session work. And those sessions are guided by people with really um, diverse ancestries, gender identities, life experiences. And... As you mentioned, the trainees are required to offer a certain number of low-income sessions to make sure the work's accessible to people who don't have a lot of financial means but want to step in. So, And that doesn't have to happen in person. So we have folks engaging from all over the world, really. And there's a, hours and hours of free conversations and interviews and resources on the site as well. So I'm, I'm glad for what we've created so far and for what's emerging. Yeah, it, it looks wonderful. It looks great. Um, and again, the website is ancestralmedicine.org for those of you who might be sitting at a computer and want to get on that right now. Well, Daniel, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Um, I learned a great deal and we may be meeting. I, I am uh, very much considering taking your 2020 practitioner training. I just, I love the content and what I'm seeing and I feel like it would be a great leap from what I've already been trained in and going more and more in depth because it really was this year. Um, when I led my first, uh, and it was more of in the Western African tradition of, um, are you familiar with Maladoma Somme's work? 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is the year of minerals. So we did a mineral ritual and I did it for a bunch of women and we met weekly for about either seven or nine weeks. And it was just, it was amazing. It was amazing to lead. I've been through, um, you know, the different elements and rituals with my teacher probably over the past 10 years or so. So it was, it was interesting to hold space instead of be the participant. And then I went and participated in my own mineral ritual the month after. Um, but it just, I don't know, something it's always clicked with me, but something really shifted this year in where I just feel like this is where a lot of the work is at. And it's so important important. Uh, and it's hard not to continue to want to move forward with it and deeper. Um, once you really begin to see the beauty of how things heal within ourselves, within the lineage, um, within all beings really that we're connected to. So I am, I'm very, very excited to have stumbled upon your work and I have a feeling we're going to be working together soon. So thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. That's great, April. Thank you. And thanks for your service there. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today. 